Everybody, welcome to Chuck Yates Needs a Job, the podcast. Ultimate treat. DRW's in the house. What's up, Chuck? I, I still love. I still laugh every time I hear the title of the of the podcast. It's it's so good. The uh, you know I've actually heard out in circles that it's getting tired. It's like that's so overplayed. The Chuck Yates needs a job. Fuck it, I double down on it. I I like it. It was you know I, you and I, I think I've talked about this, but the book I wrote called What the fuck is wrong with everybody else what they didn't teach you in business school i probably would change the title today but it's like so familiar and part of like stories and stuff that that i never did so i think the chuck yates needs a podcast is kind of similar in that way yeah exactly all right we're gonna do the menu you choose what we're uh, gonna chat about today okay do we want to do we want to talk drw's Greatest hits on hot takes, and you just fire them at me, and I'll argue back. Do we want to talk mental health type stuff? Because you had an interesting post on LinkedIn the other day. Mm -hmm. Or do we want to talk what we just talked about at lunch in terms of energy advocacy and trying to figure it out? I mean, I'm gonna I, leave it to you. Yeah, you know, I think I think we we take mental health. I, I do think that that's such an important topic. So I would say let's talk mental health, but I think. What ties in there is themes of energy because like part of the mental health challenge, I think, with society right now is feeling lied to by politicians, feeling lied to by the media, not understanding where your energy comes from. Again, not to like directly tie the two, but it's hard not to wake up some days and be massively frustrated at the hypocrisy. So I think we kind of start with mental health and see if we uh, see. Yeah, because I mean, we got kicked in the nuts. I mean, as a, as, a tough a, as an industry. As 2020 was brutal. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, exactly. The uh, no, because I mean, at the end of the day, you know, my running joke. People are like, "Why'd you, why'd you get fired?" And I'm like, "Oh, I caused minus thirty seven dollar oil. It was it was all me, right. you know." And that's that's what did it. But yeah, no, I think going down into that, and then you throw COVID on top mm -hmm. of it, and it was just a dark time. I am. Um, I mean, I'm a pretty happy go lucky person. But there were some dark days down in uh, down in Richmond because yeah. my ex-wife had asthma. And so early days of COVID, you're like going, I got to be good because the kids are going back and forth. Mm -hmm. And, you know, definitely didn't want something bad to happen to the kids. Uh, uh, mom. So I was being really so I had dark days yeah. during uh, during that time. It was I mean, and, and I agree with you. And and for me in a different way. Right. So I'm a data guy. And um I was looking at the data and amazingly, because I got kicked off LinkedIn f permanently most recently. So I'd, I'd been kicked off at the end of 2020 and I tried to appeal it. And then when the January 6th insurrection happened, they realized what true censorship was. And I think they kind of went through their list of people that they probably shouldn't have banned and put <laughs> me back on. And then I got banned again, you know, around about uh, Thanksgiving. And, you know, there was the Aaron Rodgers stuff going on and but I was a data guy and I, and I have all my posts back from for every single one that I didn't post to my website, but that was just like my LinkedIn sort of because I used LinkedIn as Twitter. Right. And so it was like sometimes paragraphs, but but all the data was there to show 
the fatality rates and the mortality rates. And I mean, I have articles and, and links and talks from back then. And I was so frustrated. And, and the more that I wasn't being heard, not because I, I was particularly important, but the more that I would try and explain the numbers to people, the more they would reject them, the angrier I would get, the more hostile I would get, the louder I would speak, the more negative. And all of that just was such a negative snowball through 2020. And was um, that, and was part of that being in effect cooped up in your house, having those type mm -hmm. discussions online? Was that, I, I mean, was I th that where it was? I, I think so. But I was also like, so at the time, I will tell you the, the biggest thing I was wrong about with COVID is I didn't actually think that the Federal Reserve or the government would print $10 trillion. Right. Right. So I was sort of like, okay, so we're shutting the economy down. There's no, I mean, so now we lock it down. We we flatten the curve. Now what? We have to wait till vaccines because the second you reopen the economy, if everyone goes back to what they're doing, like, so so how, what is the out here? That was driving me crazy. And number two, I was like, so, but then unemployment's going to go to 10%. It's never coming back. Um, jobs are going away. Families are going away. Businesses are going away. Like, and all the things that that you would project if you didn't know that they would have just pumped unlimited stimulus but then now we're seeing the consequences of it so even if i had known that they would pump 10 trillion dollars i'd be like well inflation's going to seven percent you know we broke supply chain so i felt like it was my job which it clearly wasn't to like warn the world to try and prevent us from going into this catastrophe of our own making and the more i would write about it and then I would get people DMing me and death threats on Twitter and and you're just trying to kill my grandma and stay in your lane and you're a horrible person and like but and that really that really put me in a dark place because I felt very isolated from virtually everyone. Because you you weren't working then in no, terms of no. of of a job. I so. I, reti I retired, retired, resigned, fired. They're all kind of the same word, right? Um, but when, I prefer fired. I, I mean, I, I like I so. Like so I, I like I like fired too, and I've been fired a lot in my career. But but so I left. I left Franklin Mountain in um, October of 2019. It, after we sold One Energy, yeah. I'm cutting you off real no, quick. You're good. Biggest one of biggest disappointments is the Wall Street Journal article about me says Chuck Yates has left the firm, and I was like, no, I got fired. Right. I wanted fired in the Wall Street Journal. Wall Street Journal, I demand a retraction on that and replace with fire. Well, I but definitely got fired before I wrote the book. And and I've been fired multiple times ever since then. I mean, and like you, I mean, what I find out about our friendship and, and the chats we have, like you and I are kind of similar. Like we're we're both different characters, I think is, yep. is probably the polite way to say it. <laughs> when we have we have our strengths, but we also have our weaknesses. And and right. when when it comes to rubbing people the wrong way eventually, which inevitably is gonna happen. Yeah. Um, it, it ends up going a different way, but no. So we, I left in October 19. And then, as you may remember, I, like I had I, not a very large portion of, of what we did at one energy, but like a small portion, we put it, I put in some oil and gas stocks. And, um, and so I called it, I affectionately called it the family office. And, you know, the thesis at the time was oil and gas has, has peaked the U S production yeah. peaked. And that happened November, 2019. I don't think we'll ever get back to that. And, so I was like, oil is going to be 60 to 65, and the world is expecting the U.S. to grow a million barrels a day. It won't. We're going to grow demand to 101 million barrels a day. So any undervalued company in a $63 world, like this is a double or triple. And uh, now if I'd been in a coma from about March 1st of 2020 to March 1st of, or February 1st of 2022, 
I mean, the thesis was right. I owned PDC, I owned Callan, and I owned CDEV. And all of them are well above double what I paid for them. And I went on Bloomberg in January and talked about those three stocks. And then, of course, COVID happened. And so that so that contributed a lot, too, because like a lot of people, I mean, you lose, A, you're wrong. B, right. you can't avoid it. C, you've lost a lot of money. Um, D, the world's acting crazy. E, we're locked in our homes and you can't do the things you love. Like it was... It was a horrible. It was horrible, and and I think we're going to see the effects of mental health issues and anxiety and and anger and de divisiveness for for years to come if we don't really do something about it as a country. Because the th the thing that became clear to me, kind of during my my summer of quarantine, if you will, was I had an appreciation that a lot of the stuff that was quote unquote bad, wrong, you know. I was fired for performance, right. you know, you look back and it literally was all beta stuff that I couldn't control. Yeah. And quite frankly, if anybody can really figure out what oil prices are going to do, go trade oil prices. Totally. We have a NYMEX. You totally. can do that every day. And so, so be, in a weird sort of way, while it was horrible being by yourself and all, there was, and, and the other thing I did that was really good during that quarantine period is I stopped drinking. Because yeah. I was just like, I'm not going to drink by myself. It's yeah. not going to end well. But that was that was the one good thing I did is, hey, this is a bunch of beta. I'm not an idiot. Yeah. You know, oil went to minus 37. I didn't have anything to do with it. If anyone else could have called that, any of our LPs, any of my partners at Kane, why didn't you tell me? You would be, and they'd be rich, right? Yeah. They'd be totally rich. Yeah. The, you know, it's funny, the firing thing, and, and I think that this will resonate maybe with listeners, and, and it doesn't matter if you've been laid off or fired or downsized, or a lot, a lot of people have had their changes. And, and I think that when you left Kane, when you were fired from Kane, it was your first firing, right? Yeah. And so when I got fired from Enterplus, that was my first firing. And what I found was it took, I, I was so wrapped up in my career and, and the, the ego of of like your career was your person. It was your purpose. It was your everything. You identified yourself by what you were doing. You know, you'd get 300 emails, 50 phone calls, you're running rigs, you're, you know, and then I remember, I mean, this is NAPE week and I remember very, very clearly in 2012 NAPE and it was uh, after, you know, I came down and I have like this piece of paper being like looking to raise $500 million and buy $500 million worth of assets and I partnered with a guy we're going to do this. And, and like, no one wanted all the people I thought were my friends that, that they were friends because they were selling me services and rigs and right. like all. And so like, I was important to their career and it's not like they didn't like me, but all of a sudden you go like from, they have time for you because of your role to you have, they have no time for you because you don't have a role. Right. And so I laugh, like I, I give this advice all the time. Networking is not showing up at happy hours. It's, it's answering emails to people who like, like send you a note. Because the number of completion engineers that would not answer service company calls for years, and then that completion engineer would get laid off, and they would like call the four salesmen. They would call him every two weeks, and he would never respond. He's like, "Hey, do you know of a job?" And you're like, "I wasn't calling you because I like you. I was calling you because right. because you have business for me." Whereas if you can build a relationship with people, I think it's just so so different. But but yeah, understanding the narrative. It took me a long time to to own the story of being fired. And like you, I owned it. I wrote a book about it. I published a book about it. And, um, but when you're trying to figure out like what happened and was it performance and 
the politics and oh my god am i bad am i ever going to work again i mean that that was it was awful it was really really hard yeah no the my kind of moment on why i moved out of houston and back home to richmond texas mm-hmm. which is kind of 25 miles from here is i was at dinner with a friend and a banker consultant lawyer type walks up and i leaned over to my friend and said 37 and my friend's like, what? Anyway, banker comes over, blah, 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 blah. And, hey, want to bring my high-yield group by? Or, hey, we want to talk to your company about representing them on the PSA or whatever mm-hmm. the case may be is. And I said, okay, great. Give me a shout and we'll do this. And walks off and I go, it didn't even take 37 seconds. You know, right. and, and here I was in the middle of, yeah. of separation, going through a divorce. And you kind of feel like everybody knows that, even yeah. though they probably don't. But right. you kind of feel like it. And you, you expect a, hey, how you doing? Hey, how you, you doing? Know? Yeah. And it's not. It's I want to bring, bring my team by. And so that's why I moved back out to, uh, to Richmond. Right. You know, because uh, back there, I'm just the 18-year-old shit that used to ride my bike across somebody's yard. Right. You know? Yeah. No, I mean, it, it totally. P- p- relationships are very interesting. And. You know, the saying I said, um, and I, I think I've told you this story, but I, I say nobody cares it's your birthday. And, and really where it was born was accidental. I was walking into a restaurant when my son was 11. He was my younger son. He was holding my hand and swinging in. It was like February 2nd, and his birthday's March 28th. And he goes, Dad, are you excited about my birthday? And I looked at him, and I got down on my knee, and I said, Andrew, no one gives a fuck it's your birthday. And the second that we're done in this conversation, I'm going to go back to doing what I was doing before you started talking, which was thinking about myself, just like the rest of the world. So no, I don't care. It's your birthday. <laughs> and yeah. And so, <laughs> um, but, and, and, and it's a cynical view, but I, so that's like, that's the story to it. But at the end of the day, everyone, to your point on your divorce, right? Like the people really, really care about you and like can see, like they can hear in your voice that something's wrong and they actually ask about you. They're different, but most people are busy, you know, paying their mortgage and thinking about what car they're going to buy and where they're going to go on vacation. And like, they're kind of in their own little headspace. And I think if you accept that and know it, A, it differentiates the friends that care. And I mean, I say this to you and Thomas and, and Brandon for sure. Last January where I was like, I was in a pretty dark spot, um, you know, at the end of 2020, just with the way the world was so frustrating. And you guys all reached out and were like, we're going to hang out. And um, it was really, it was really impactful for me. And you guys knew and you could tell and you could see in my mannerisms. And, and, you know, I was, I was writing more and more out of control, I think, and like a lot of anger and, and the friends are the ones that reach out. And so I've always appreciated you and Thomas and Brandon in particular for, for that. Well, cause the, the scary part of what happened in that, in your writing is you became very kind of matter of fact about things. Yeah. And that was weird. Cause that's not you. You're, you're matter of fact, but with fucking flair. Right. right? And right. The fucking, like the shoes. Yeah. Like the shoes, <laughs> the fucking, yeah, there you go. We can, yeah. But uh, the, the, the fucking flair was gone. And that, that's yeah. actually what worried me was, and you know, the reason I kind of got with Thomas and then I didn't know Brandon, but yeah. Thomas knew Brandon was just, there's no flair here. Yeah. Something, something's yeah. potentially wrong. Well, and, and you know, it's, it's interesting. Like, again, we talk about mental health and where this came from and, and it was really easy for me and it's, it's easy for me to give advice on people's careers. And so a lot of people reach out and I, 
when you're on the outside and you're not emotionally involved, it's so much easier to be like, well, your boss is thinking this, so you need to do this and you should give this advice and then don't say this. And there you go, you're done. Yeah. And so I was, you know, I'd given out my cell phone number a lot for people who had, who had um, if they needed to talk to someone. And it was always easier for me to talk to other people, especially strangers, than it was for me to really like focus on my own level of like frustration with the world. And yeah, the flare, the flare definitely went away. And, you know, I mean, I think like a lot of people, I was just like, what is, what is the point of all this? Like you work your entire life to, you know, whether it's retirement and, and, um, I was at a funeral this week, uh, guy, golf buddy, known him for 10 years, you know, in the last couple of years, we didn't play as much together, but used to play a lot. And 67, he just, he'd put off retirement. He liked work, didn't want to go wonderful family person hung out. And then didn't feel good on February 1st, kind of his wife was out visiting his new grandbaby in Kansas City. And he kind of called in sick for work and then they all stay home. And then um, the next day she called and they didn't answer. And so she sent a neighbor over and they found him almost fully dressed for work, lying beside the bed. He'd had a massive heart attack and died. And, you know, so like on the depression thing, it's like, that's how it ends. We all end up in a box. Right. We only have so many days and we have no control over the timing. And so it just, you know, you have to figure out the good. And in 2020, lockdowns and all this other craziness and government policies and hatred of Democrats and Republicans, it was just so much. I was like, what is the point? And I'm sure a lot of people have felt that. Um, and, and it, you know, you were certainly part of it. Some friends were part of it. I have a couple of really good friends that were part of pulling me out. And I feel a lot better now. And I'm very, very aware of mental health stuff now more so than I used to be. Yeah. So how did you get out of that? Cause you're kind of in the funk. We're texting some. Yeah. I am ill prepared to help on that front. Right. I mean, a lot of effort there, but yeah. I'm not sure, you know, I'm, I'm qualified to do it. So I was trying to check in. I was making sure I roped in Brandon and yeah. Thomas to be yeah. checking in on you. Yeah. But what were you doing up inside your head? Well, so I was very frustrated and you can definitely see it in my writing. Um, which to me, like I write the hot take like a journal and, and what I like about it. And I think what people, what resonates is I'm not, I, I don't monetize it. I don't sell ads. I don't, I mean, I just write what I feel. So I don't care what people think. I don't care what topics they want me to write about. So I, I journal and, and I can see it in my writing. And so I went down to our place in Arizona and I had, I had three friends and everyone was in their own kind of a dark place. I called it the four D's trip. One guy, his wife had been diagnosed with brain cancer 11 months before a geo, uh, geoplastoma. Is that geoplastoma? Yeah, yeah, that one. So she got that and then had just died. She was 47, yeah. two kids. It's a death sentence. death sentence. It's not a question of if, it's only a question death, death of sentence. when. Yeah. So he was the death. Then a friend was a pilot um, with United and, of course, had, had just been promoted to be a pilot. And then coronavirus hits and they ramp everything down and he gets demoted. So we had the demoted. Mm -hmm. um, we had the... Um, I was covering off for the depressed category and one guy had just got divorced. And so it was kind of like the four D's trip. And, yeah. and I remember, I remember arriving and I wasn't even really excited to be hanging out with, with them. And one of my buddies, I won't say which one had brought some gummies from Denver and he's like, take this. I'm like, I don't do that. And he's like, take it. And for whatever reason, so we went for dinner. I had a half, like five milligrams, got to dinner. And then the check arrived and I was like, well, guys, we can't pay yet. We haven't eaten. 
And, and they look at me and they're like, you just had the biggest pasta chicken dish I've ever seen in my life. You don't remember that? And so then my buddy smiled and he handed me the other half and we went to a bar and I laughed for three hours consecutively, uncontrollably. It was, a, you know, it was really the first time I'd ever done marijuana. And um, I've never laughed so hard. They had to put me in a cab. And in the cab, I was lying in the backseat crying. I was laughing so hard. And that feeling of euphoria actually interestingly is what kind of snapped me back to like remembering a time when I was less serious and less angry and less whatever. And so as weird as it is, like it was a kick in the ass. And and so for those in states where it is legal, uh, you know, if you're having a, a hard one, I, I don't, I don't not recommend that because it really helped for me. And then because I then had a better perspective and I, um, and I had laughed, it, it, made everything better you know you know what i think it was i'm going to disagree with you I on love that it. um i think the two most powerful words in english language are me too because everybody i mean Brene brown writes about yeah. it and ultimately at the core she says when you don't feel worthy of love that leads to all the bad behavior depression all that sort of stuff i agree with that and the you know, and then you you kind of morph her writings. The only way to get out of there is shame hates words. So okay. you got to talk. And the reason people are so scared to talk and share and all that is they think they're going to be judged or whatever. And when you hear me too, that's the moment of, okay, I've been accepted. I've said this horrible thing about myself. Right. I'm depressed. I just got divorced. I got demoted. You hear me too, and you're able to share. And if marijuana helps facilitate that, but I think at its core, it's actually the me too that, that did really, it for you that night. Uh, it's really an interesting point. And, and you want to talk about like where society is right now. I think me too ties to that because me too has morphed into this movement. BLM has morphed into this movement. Critical race theory has morphed into this movement. But like what you just described, I had totally delinked what actually me too meant, which was, I was feeling a thing and you were feeling a thing and and me too. And it's amazing how weaponized that phrase has become. And I do definitely agree. And I think it's the same as being fired. Until you find your voice and find other people who've been through that and can share the pain and the suffering, it's really hard to rationalize what happened. And then me too, you're right. I, I, I would not disagree with you on that. Yeah, and I always say that about my priest Patrick. And he's... The reason I dealt with getting fired relatively well and the reason I dealt with quarantine relatively well, yeah. despite the the dark periods, is I'd kind of gone through it a few years before with the divorce. Right. And Patrick Miller, my priest, um, you know, every time we got together and I would feel a horrific amount of shame because I just yelled at Kim or I yelled at one of the kids right. or, you know, whatever the thing was and I'd fess up to it. Patrick would always tell me something he did that was worse. I'd be like, dude, you're a priest. You can't do that. And he goes, I know, it's really bad. Right. But uh, yeah, no, when you figure out that we're all here trying to do our best mm -hmm. and and uh, and the like, I think, I think that's really important. And that's always my number one advice is when somebody's in a dark place, go find someone you can talk to and just talk to them. Yeah. You know, and just say it all because it actually doesn't sound that bad. When you talk about it, when you hear yourself saying it out loud, 
I got fired. Dude, it was in the Wall Street Journal. That's right. fucking cool. Right. You know? Right. It is. Yeah. I mean, it is. It is very. It's interesting. And, and in the mental health thing, I certainly think that isolation and, and we have we have seemed to have lost some of the humanity, maybe uh, over the last two years. I'd be I'd be curious on your your take on that. But like. You know, it's always been divisive and it's been getting more divisive. I think Trump really galvanized and like people who felt punished for four years that he was their president. And then like when he lost the election, we're not going to go into that topic. Um, I think that they wanted like retribution. Right. And so then there was like a punishment for anyone who was on that side. And so some of these mask mandates and some of these like super overbearing things were like almost punishments and so we we've gone back and forth and then we locked people away and we covered their smiles and you know i mean one of the topics i'm very passionate about i know you've seen me write about it but last summer at nape a friend of mine was was ghb'd by someone that she knows yeah and um it was very fortunate that you know through like it's fortunate that that she wasn't there and as i would tell that story the number of women who would tell me that it's happened to them recently, including a woman who told me about it this weekend, where, and again, the humanity has been lost. It's like people forgot how to date or something. And they're like, they're doing horrible things to each other. And and I worry about that as the effect on mental, mental health for people because we're not connecting, we're not talking, we're not reaching out, we're treating people like animals. If you're on that side of the debate, you're horrible. And if you're on this side, we're, and no one's talking in the middle. And we need that. I think. Yeah, no, I, and we were kind of talking about this at lunch that I think part of the polarization is literally just take it back to money to, to in effect monetize a newscast. You need a passionate audience, mm -hmm. maybe not the biggest audience, particularly in a world where distribution happens on TV, right. on your phone, on your radio, computer, wherever you want. We've got so many different channels that, Back, say what you want about the big three, but when you had the big three, they broadcast to the middle, right? Yeah. And then when we have all these dis distribution paths, you're creating that intensity of an audience so you can monetize. Because, I mean, it's shocking. You know, Cronkite used to get, what, 30 million viewers, 50 million viewers right. a night. Right. And now Gutfeld, I think, is number one on news, and he's getting 2.3 million viewers. Right. Well, or yeah. Three and million, or CNN, whatever. I think they talked about that they were down to like 600,000 viewers per hour. Which you know, Rogan pulls eleven million. Right. Um. You're you're totally right. And and everyone forgets the business of news and the business of Google, Facebook, Twitter is selling ads. And so they target you. They plan you. They plant the stories. They plant the clicks. They want all the traffic with clickbait so that they can show their numbers because the advertiser says, "Show me your numbers." Right. So then you send the numbers, and then lo and behold, they advertise. You know, every segment, this segment brought to you by Pfizer. And then Anderson Cooper comes on and says, you know, we think vaccines are super important and everyone should get them. This segment brought to you by Moderna. Like, right. And you're like, oh, okay, like, come on. Um, so I agree. The, the business of media has moved away from a news telling and sharing to a, a opinion driving, content driving, eyeball winning formula. Yeah. And, and now you've even got the technology such that you can track, we ran this ad and that person bought. And I think what happens is it's kind of like the primaries in government. The more extremes vote in the primaries, so that's why you generally wind up with a more extreme candidate right. as opposed to a centrist. 
I think probably, if I had to guess, advertising that is more extreme in its nature can demonstrate the sales to smaller audiences as opposed to right. bland down the middle type advertising. Right. Well, I mean, it's, I mean, and there was that, that hidden video of the CNN producer and let's be clear, every media station did it. But when they realized when they put the numbers up on the screen of the number of coronavirus deaths and cases, and you know, they got better ratings. And so they were, you know, they were pumping an entertainment story and it was being perpetuated by, you know, did did Google benefit from you being home? Yeah, because their business is advertising. If you're online twice as much, looking for stuff locked in your house that you have to buy online, Amazon benefit, Google's benefit, Twitter benefited, Facebook benefited. And so then they're also the ones policing the narrative that when someone has like a reasonable thing to say, they quell it, quash it, censor it, because it's actually good for their business. And, you know, that ties all the way back to mental health is, when you feel that level of cynicism and distrust for the for the organizations, both the institution of government, but then the institution of these corporations who control them, it it becomes really hard not to be frustrated. And you know, and then you add drinking, which is a depressant. I I, I do sober January. I, I lost sixteen pounds basically working out and not drinking, which. You know, that probably is what the president should have said when coronavirus hit. It said, okay, we're going to shut down. It's 30 days to flatten the curve. We're all going to stop drinking. We're closing all the McDonald's. We're opening all the gyms. Everyone's going to lose 10 pounds. We're going to walk together at noon, hang out with your neighbors outside, like whatever it is, we're going to get healthy. It's going to be a great experiment. And then in 30 days, we'll all be healthier and happier and off we go. You know, again, we can't go back and do it, but that's, that's what I hope we do the next time. Yeah. Because they would be so much mentally happier. Hey, everybody. Chuck Yates here. Let's face it. If you're using waves to drive around Houston and rush hour traffic, it just sucks, right? They're always trying to have you turn left onto Westheimer against traffic. Or if you're going out to the suburbs, you'll put in an address. You wind up in the middle of a field and you're going, hey, where? what? <laughs> Help! So I can't even imagine trying to use waves out in the oil field. And I can't imagine that because, let's face it, I'm a finance guy and I always wore really expensive Yeezy tennis shoes. So I didn't go to the oil field because they might get dirty. I think y'all have probably heard me tell that story. The one time I went out into the field and I was looking around, my hard hat on and turned to my partner, Mike Hines, and go, hey, Mike. And it's pretty dirty out here. And he goes, Chuck, please don't tell the company man that or you will get your ass kicked. But anyway, need I digress? So I can't imagine trying to find my way around the oil field just using waves. I'm sure it sucks. Wellsite Navigator's got you covered on this, though. They've mapped 19,000 miles of lease roads out there. They've helped 100,000 hands get to millions of wells in 22 different states. Safe, efficient, effective. So help your team out. Get WellSite Navigator. It's the oldest, most trusted app in the oil field service world. It'll help you get your people get to their site on time. No more wasting time driving around looking for stuff. And oh, by the way, if you ever want to take your private equity guy out there, you sure as hell don't want to be lost. So you'll get cram code. Yeah, no, no question. And, you know, the thing I worry about is, you know, when you see a chart, and you see up, 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 boom, you know, whether that's the recession of 08, 09 or whatever, they always have a box, right? right? And the box points down and says that's what it was. Right. 
I have been sitting here during the pandemic and quarantine going, I really hope this is a box for my kids. I hope this is 10, 15 years from now. Hey, remember that time we missed our flight for Christmas and we had to eat Christmas dinner at Denny's? I don't think it's going to be that. I think it's bigger. I agree. I have seen fundamental change in my children, I believe. I agree. And I hope it's not permanent, but I'm scared it is. Well, I mean, the education system, I mean, and the fact that we were talking about this at lunch, right? So we know we know the kids were, were just statistically, of course, some died, but just over 830 died out of 74 million people who are under 18. And 95%, the CDC's own numbers, 95% of deaths were with co- four comorbidities. And so you say, okay, so the 830 scale, the same ratios, like we're talking four kids, uh, sorry, 40 kids out of 74 million died. And we're masking them up and we're socially distanced. We're not letting them play and their friends. They're not doing their sports. We're scaring them. Scaring them. And so like my son is a golfer and he's been talking to colleges. He's a junior, going to be a senior. And most of the people who are on sports teams actually deferred for a year. And so we have this backlog of kids who basically took an entire year off because they realized like they, they were in college to play sports. And then your last year of high school, you're not allowed to do this. And like all my happy, me- I mean, I have a lot of happy memories, but like I remember college. College was amazing. And if two of the four years that I was there, I wasn't allowed to work with my friends and hang out at their houses and go to the bars and, you know, hand in assignments late, like it really screwed people up. And so we're going to have a generation of kids who are between 15 and 24 who had two years of their life, 10% of their life stolen. And that that will be a very interesting one because I agree it's not a checkbox. Like when the recession happened in 2008, I didn't really, you know, kind of knew, but I didn't have any wealth and right. like other than thinking the world economy was coming to an end, <laughs> like I didn't like feel it. And certainly the 2000 tech bubble, I was still a kid. I don't know. Right. Stock market goes up and down, but this one, it impacted everybody. Yeah. the And you know, I've got a daughter, Sarah, that's a sophomore in high school and she and I've had some pretty blunt talks just about, Hey dad, it really sucks to go to a new school, i.e. high school and have to virtually learn and not be able to build a friend group. And you know, the, the good news is we were talking a couple of weeks ago and she's like, yeah, I think I've now got my group of friends and all that. But you're right. I mean, some of my best friends still today are people I met my freshman year in right. high school. You know? well, and, and ironically, can you imagine if Facebook and Twitter were not a thing? If we were all locked in our house and we had no communication with anyone in the outside world, Many of us had virtual friendships with people we've never met, never seen their face. In fact, I could probably, re- I, I mean, I, I could, someone I've chatted with a hundred times online, I could be standing right beside them at an ape at the bar and I wouldn't have any idea who they were. Yeah. And that level of depersonalization of friendships where you're living in the metaverse and it's, it's just not, it's not real. And yeah, I mean, I mean, one of my best friends in the world, we played squash together from the time we were 12, 11 and we hung out and traveled and like, he's still my, I was best man in both his weddings. Um, and, and <laughs> that's, a, that's always my favorite thing at the second wedding, the best man gets up and says, you know, something to the effect of, as we were saying before, we were so rudely interrupted or, <laughs> right, you know, welcome right. back everyone. Yeah, exactly. Or, yeah. exactly. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's what, that's what the world is. So I think it's going to be really hard for kids. And I also think like, I mean, I was thinking about this, my perspective on coronavirus was, 
so much from my own lens to the nobody cares is your birthday. I was under 50. I'm broadly healthy. I broadly have no comorbidities. I have two sons who are in the same boat. And so I was like, you know, we're just not at risk. Like, let us be. And the politicians who are in Washington are 65, 70, 75, 80. You know, they are definitively at risk. They're really the only old people who are in the workforce. And they're setting policy for everyone to protect themselves. And then they realize if the economy shuts down, their retirement goes away and they can't work. So then they pump $10 trillion into the economy, which inflates assets at the same time as we're pushing social justice. So the hypocrisy again to a mental health, you're like, on the one hand this, and then on the other hand this, but these are not like, there's no consistency in the intellectual element of that. And, and for me personally, that's just incredibly frustrating. And I don't know where we go. Because that's the question I was just going to ask. Where do we go? What do we do? The somewhat, I feel our industry is somewhat healing. I mean, nothing like $90 oil to do that. <laughs> At the Four Seasons last night, it looked very healed to me. <laughs> let me tell you. It was, it was standing packed. The, uh, yeah, I saw a, an Uber. I think it was a Ford Explorer, but it literally had neon lights everywhere and it was flashing. And I was going, man, $90 oil. Look at that. We're back. Totally. Um, I will say this. It feels like if you really need a job, you can get a job again in our industry. Although there's still people out of uh, work. I will say there, there are some deflated people coming out of this. I've got a handful of friends that are like, that guy still has a job and I don't, yeah. not that they need to work, but so I don't think we're back, but at least $90 oil is, is helping, mm -hmm. uh, helping some of that. But I think even before the crash, we had bad issues. We, we mean, did. Yeah. As, a, as a, as an industry, I mean, it's, I had a uh, Michael Patrick Smith, the, the, the good hand on the podcast. And unfortunately the whole discussion about mental health that he brings to the table in his book got derailed by Twitter, unfortunately. But, you know, one of the points he makes is the Marines actually uh, go and look for people that have been traumatized as children. Because if you're a Marine and you're going to go storm the beaches of Normandy, you need to be used to running on adrenaline and all that. And if you've been traumatized your life when you're a kid, you're just used to that. That's your natural state. And he believes the oil field is similar in that, that it's high stakes. You can get killed at any moment. It's tough work and all. And at least the people he met out in the field mm -hmm. shared those similar attributes of having issues with their fathers, et cetera, growing up. And so I think we had this problem before quarantine and, and quarantine and COVID even made it worse. And so you see the rest of corporate America really starting to take this serious mental health type yeah. stuff. I don't know that we're doing that as an industry. Yeah. And I mean, and for sure in our industry, because to your point, if you could guess the price of oil, you'd be doing well and we can't. But the price of oil and gas is what drives success, right? So we sold in 2018 and in 2020, we looked like geniuses. In 2022, we don't look so genius anymore because the buyers are, everyone who bought anything in 2020 looks like the smartest people ever. So we live and die by the sort of commodity prices, which means that volatility for any reason, including 2014 when the Saudis opened the taps, 2008 with the financial crisis, 2000 with the bubble, 
you know, the nineties with the Gulf war, like all of these, we have PTSD and, and through no fault of our own, you could be the best run company with the best rock in the world. And if commodity goes from 90 to 50, your stock's going to basically perform at the same as the worst run company with right. the worst rock. And so, yeah, we, we have a, a fundamental issue and then it is a high stress, high stakes, very active, very data driven industry. So, um, it will be interesting to see like the guys like a zoom, right. That benefited from the pandemic. How did they survive? Peloton. We saw that this week. Yeah. Their stock was up 600% over their IPO or whatever. And turns out that people don't actually exercise all the time if they're not locked in their home right. and that the, 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 the bike with the TV on it is still a great clothes rack as was the one that you bought in 1980 that has the chain, the Schwinn chain. Right. Um, so well, yeah. even even more so to make the analogy to oil and gas is when sales are going through the roof because people think they're going to exercise during the pandemic, you don't actually have to manufacture the low cost, high quality product, right? To totally. I mean, we yeah. saw that in 2012. I know with, with you at Kane and me and the Bakken. I mean, yeah, you're you're spending. You have a hundred trucks lined up on the highway spending 150 bucks an hour just to try and get frack water at 150 barrels a truck. Like it was crazy. The amount of money that was spent on, you know, we need coil tubing on standby. We'll pay $25,000 just in case. Yeah. The, the, like money was just going out the door and the yeah. business was not very well run. We're losing $125 a barrel if you don't get it online. Yeah, 100%. Which was, yeah. Which is just crazy. Crazy. Yeah. No, I, th I think we are having to change on that front just because, and we can get into this whole debate and this could probably be a whole different podcast, but I still don't think we get external capital outside our cash flow in a meaningful way. I don't either. Until you are materially underperforming an index of some sort, CIO has no reason to own energy. I agree. And and we've seen it that that saying you were wrong is very hard. As we've seen the again and and a friend I went out for dinner with, and he's like, why does COVID permeate everywhere? And I'm like, because A, it was our life for the last two years, but B, it's there's so many great analogies. And so, um, you know, like, for example, yesterday, the CNN, I think Leah Wen is her name, said, well, the science has changed. Okay, well, what about the climate? So could the climate change, science change? Because if so, we're spending four to nine trillion dollars a year to like address a thing. And if the science is going to change, even though you said... Like you can't challenge the science. Consensus is the science. Like don't challenge Fauci. The science is the science. And then all of a sudden the science changed because the narrative changed. It would be very hard for the people in Europe, the green funds, the green techs, the Larry Finks to come out and say, actually, you know what? We were wrong. Um, fossil fuels are actually extraordinarily important. And even though statistically they're 90% plus of the energy's world supply. Uh, and we told you that they were really awful and horrible and carbon was bad, but We've actually decided that the trade-off of energy versus poverty and lifestyle is is worth it. So sorry, guys. We're gonna now just give Exxon a whole bunch of money to go get some more oil. I agree. I don't they're they're not going to do it. And so you're gonna see continued consolidation, staying within cash flow, the Saudis really continuing to dominate prices because they control 30% of the market. And we're all gonna be price takers. And well, and what's so scary about that is I'll get the stat wrong. You probably have it right. What, five out of the last seven months, six out of the last eight? OPEC hadn't hit their targets. They haven't hit their targets. And they're not doing that because they're nice guys and, oh, you know what? We'll just, we'll be extra good actors here, come in a little under budget. I don't think they have it. 
So, so I, there's two questions about that and I don't know the answer. Number one, do they have it? Maybe. But number two, the world has told, so Saudi Arabia, when I went on Bloomberg and, and it was November of 19, Saudi Aramco was about to go public. So I read their entire perspectives cover to cover so I could be intelligent in the two and a half minutes that I had on, on Bloomberg. And they have a 53 year reserve life index at 10 million barrels a day. And by comparison, Exxon has around a 15 to 17 year reserve life index. So if, if Saudi was a company, they would triple their production to get their reserve life index down to 17. So that would make them go from 10 million barrels a day to 30. And I understand that there's water floods and there's like there's some some characteristics as to why they wouldn't do that. But the world has also told them they are not interested in the oil that they produce and that they want to go away from it. And so if it's going to take you 53 years to get out all your oil at 10 million barrels a day and the world is saying, I don't want to use your stuff, are you super inclined to produce a whole bunch more at 50 a barrel? Or are you super inclined to just let prices be 90 a barrel, 100 a barrel, 110 a barrel and like choke the world of, of energy because it's good for your economy? I mean, I, I tend to go that way. So why would they produce everything that they could if they can make oil 120 bucks a barrel? Well, and you know, you take the the flip side. Brad Olson came on and did the BDE show with me this week. Yeah, because Colin was out getting fitted for platform shoes. Nothing like nothing like a Colin short joke. But um, anyway, we talked about how do you think about demand destruction today? Because half of me sits there and goes, inflation adjusted oil at ninety actually isn't as bad as it's been historically. I mean, it's you know. Incomes are up, whatever, 50, 60 percent. Right. It's a smaller piece of your paycheck. It's been flat for gasoline price, been flat for 15 years. Okay, the world can deal with 90. Can it deal with 100? Can it deal with 110? You know, the other half of me says, though, just runaway inflation, you got less money for everything. Totally. Does that kind of lead into the recession that kills, kills demand? And so one of the things Brad said that I don't think I'd ever thought of before is he said, we really don't have a good data point. Oh, It's all a guesstimate. Well, and it, we haven't had inflation like this really since, I mean, our, you'd argue not the 80s. Not your career. Not, certainly not my career. I would say I was seven in the 80s, you know, early 80s when Volcker came on um, as the chairman of the Fed, where, you know, your parents always tell the story of when they had the mortgage that was like a 12 or 13 or 14% interest rate. And- so, so I think it's interesting because we're coming out of two years of coronavirus where we've kind of been shut in and you're kind of at work and then you're not and then people are going to go back to work and then they're kind of not. So we have like this weird high, like the world feels weird. And then, so I don't think anyone's made behavioral changes on what they buy. Um, so I don't think people have felt inflation. They're like, well, maybe, maybe it is transitory like they say, but you're still stuck in the same car you had two years ago because you can't buy a new one. Right. You're still... Stuck, you know, and I mean, so I don't know. Can the world handle it? It's fairly inelastic, right? For most people. I mean, I went to fill up my car the other day and it costs what it costs. I needed 20 gallons. It was four bucks a gallon. It was 80 bucks. Yeah. You know, am I really going to drive less? Maybe, but I don't know that people have made those changes because they're still maybe working from home or their kids aren't in sports or their, their kids are learning remotely especially in the New Yorks and the Californias where there's a right. huge population base. Uh, it, it's going to be really interesting. Yeah. No, it, uh, it is. The only thing I really remember, because I'm older than you are, but the only thing I remember about inflation from the Carter 
administration is my dad actually had a gasoline tank and fuel pump put in our backyard. Right. Yeah. Just because you had to wait in line. I mean, prices were through the roof and he was able to buy it wholesale instead of retail. Right. But it was don't have to wait in line and and all that. And so it was uh, it was a real thing. And I think that is the interesting dynamic that there's not an investor on the planet today younger than call it 50, 55 that's really dealt with inflation in totally. a model. Well, and and what I find with energy, right? So I'm not totally bought into the world doesn't have enough oil. I mean, clearly it doesn't in their short term, but like 90 feels to me, 90 feels a bit rich. And, but you can always back up your bull case, right? Like you have the thesis, the thesis is energy's good. So you cherry pick all the data points that support. Well, you know, OPEC hasn't been producing enough. So therefore they must not be able to produce enough. Therefore it's bullish. Um, <coughs> pardon me. So, but when I look at the world, I go, okay, so the only way to temper inflation is to raise interest rates. If you raise interest rates, houses become less affordable. Houses need to fall. And there's so much liquidity in the market because bonds are so free that everyone's going to equity. If you play that out just as a rational human, even if we've never done it in our career, if interest rates are 3% where they should be, the market should be down 30, 40%, which is basically where it was before coronavirus happened. And you can't say the last two years was good for the economy. So why are we trading where we are versus where, where it should be? I don't know. It's crazy. No, it, uh, it, uh, it <coughs> really is. So, all right. To come back to mental health mm. and kind of kind of close this thing on, I know we said we don't know where we're going on that. Yeah. But let's spitball on maybe where we should go. Yeah. Um, one, I think oil and gas companies need to take it really seriously and start spending money on curriculums because at least what I've seen from younger people is, and it may just be they grew up on Facebook and Instagram, and so they have no concept of private versus public. Right. Um, we used to, you had your work life and then your home life. That's all blurred for, for younger people. And so the sense of emotional well-being there's not a line between work and personal life anymore. So work is at least going to have to be able to address that in some way, shape, or form. And exactly what that looks like, I don't know, but you look at other industries where you can log on and talk to a therapist through right. you know, the computer, the, the intranet at work, et cetera. I think we have to take that really seriously because at the end of the day, if we don't get any more kids in this industry, we're gone. Mm -hmm. So that's my one. You give me one. Um, well, I, I mean, I think both for our industry, but also go forward, we need to do a better job of of taking responsibility for when we were wrong and when the things changed, right? And and I, I said this a lot in 2020. Obviously, the hot take had been talking a lot about mergers and that mergers needed to happen. We have too many CEOs per barrel in the industry. Right. That's a great stat, isn't by the it, way. I've used that. I so stole good. that. Um, and, and so we need to shrink that, but they didn't do it when the sun was shining. They waited until it was pouring and, a, and, you know, Noah's Ark was coming to take people two by two. And so you had no money to pay salaries, no money to pay severances. No, so people would get fired in the middle of 2020 when you couldn't get a job and got nothing. And so I look at it now with $90 oil 
knowing where the industry is going to go, I think our industry has to do a better job of transitioning people fairly and be like, thank you for your service. Here's six months salary. Here's eight, like whatever, but take care of people since like they survived and money is important to help transition. I think you can, you would leave a whole bunch of people with bad taste in their mouth. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's an oil and gas specific. What should we do when the layoffs happen? We should be paying people really, really well and saying, thank you for your service. Um, for the world, I think we need to have more conversations about the, the fact that we were wrong. Right. And it's very hard to say the coronavirus response was wrong and no one wants to say it. I was wrong. They were wrong. There was a middle ground. So let's talk about it and let's legislate it and let's stop running the country by executive orders and let's have a president who's trustworthy senators, Congress people, corporate leaders, and actually talk about the issues again, instead of this rhetoric and clickbaits and yelling from both sides. That That's what I'd like to see. And, and that it has to start with people like us where we're conversing. Right. Um, so the, you know, I, I had a, a couple of democratic uh, candidates for state rep on the uh, podcast yeah. about two or three months ago. And we were talking about suggestions for reform and uh my suggestion was candidates running against each other the republican and the democrat every two weeks they have to take their families and go eat dinner together no cameras no nothing but you got to spend two hours eating dinner together because it's i think part it's a really of a good idea I, I agree with it totally part of why i think we've gotten we've gotten nastier towards each other is you can hide behind emails, texts, social media. It's a lot harder to call somebody a bastard when you're sitting there face to face. And when you can find like commonalities. And it's funny, I'm sure most of America didn't even know what the filibuster was. I, I would include myself in that really. And had never thought about it. And, and the more I think about things like the filibuster is if you can't get 60 out of 100 people to vote on a thing with approval, it's too extreme. And so to that same point on, like, if you can't find moderate common ground over dinner with your opponent and be like, you know what we can both agree to is, you know, teachers should be better paid. How we pay for it might be different, but let's like orchestrate a true bipartisan solution that then 60% of the the Congress or or Senator or whatever can vote for. I, th- I think that's a, a great idea. I always made the joke that, I think everyone who watches nothing but Fox News should have to watch CNN for 10 days and mm-hmm. vice versa. But th- quite frankly, the news is so bad. I actually think that anyone who watches CNN or Fox should just turn it off and only read like a once a week publication or local news or something because right. it's just too, it's, it just gets you all rallied up. Yeah. The one other thing I'll throw out there is you really need to watch after your friends during this day and age. And one of the great things about moving back to Richmond, at least for me, is I'm dealing with people that knew me before I was 18. Right. You know, and we really don't change our stripes that much during our lives. And so when you have people that have known you for a long time, they can just tell when something's off. Yeah. And so if you're sitting out there and you feel disconnected from the world and all, if you can go reconnect with people that knew you when you were younger and conversely 
people that maybe you're not talking to that you see on Facebook and you go, ah, something's wrong. You really got to watch out for your friends these days. I agree. And, and find something that you love, right? Like I taught myself to play guitar badly when I was 18 and I really put it away. And, and a friend, uh, that, that we both know when we were in Arizona and about November, two years ago, he's like, dude, you have time. Why don't you, why don't you pick up guitar again? And, and it's been awesome. And then I really gave up squash for the most part for the better part of the last 15 or 18 years. And I used to play on the national team and world caliber, world championships, Pan American game stuff. And I just started playing again in the last couple of months and, and I forgot how much I love it. And so doing something that you truly love that has, it's only for you, you sweat, it's creative, it's music, it's whatever. I think that that will also help a lot of people on the mental health, like get off center and and for me, I've just been so happy that the squash is back in my life and that I'm trying to play my guitar better. <laughs> well, the last public service announcement I'll do is if you're going through a dark time, definitely reach out, talk to someone. As I said earlier, shame doesn't survive words because what you will find is the person you choose to open up to 99.9% .9 of the time they're going to be receptive to it and be helpful because that's why you chose them. Absolutely. You know? So yeah, I agree. And call, I'm Chuck, Chuck's very good. So you can call Chuck anytime and you can certainly call me and I've got my cell phone out there. I'm very easy to find if you need something. Yeah. My cell phone's on uh, LinkedIn as well. I appreciate not calling after midnight, <laughs> but I'll take the midnight call if need be. Yeah. DRW, you were cool to come on. Oh, well, really I appreciate it. I'm a huge fan of what you're doing. And I think, uh, you kind of have a job. This podcast is a job. And I think it's a very, you know, it's good that our industry has the characters and the personalities to be able to advance the issues that are important. We've talked about Orphan Wells. We've talked about ESG. We've talked about, you know, the world needs energy and we need people to be open to discuss them. So I appreciate what you're doing. And I appreciate yeah, no, the hot take of the day. You do a great job of making people think. And the second thing you do that's really useful, even if you're antagonizing someone, you're creating a, a database mm -hmm. of facts that other people can use. Mm -hmm. And I think that's underappreciated and, and very important as well. well I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on.